Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For I am not Emily Kimberly, the daughter of Dwayne and Alma Kimberly. No, I'm not. I'm Edward Kimberly, the reckless brother of my sister Anthony. No! Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California. Voiceover guy as well, and excited to be jumping back into one of my favorite films ever, and one that I think we've had a great time discussing in our part one, Steve, and I'm looking very much forward to discussing the things that came up in part two. Me too. And I'll tell you something. So when we, you know, we break it into parts, I always reread my notes just because in order to kind of tell the story of the movie, I have to make sure that I remember everything. And as I'm rereading my notes, I was cracking up. <laughs> that's, that's how good, that's, that's how good this movie is. It's just, you know, is I can hear Dustin Hoffman's lines and they're just really, really, really funny. Yeah, they are. Um, and where we left off was Dustin Hoffman, Michael, was preparing for his first quote-unquote date with Julie, and he was very concerned about what he was going to wear, and he wanted to look pretty for her, and he heads over to her place, and she answers the door wearing sweats. And I just think it's a great, (laughs) perfect example of how differently they see what's going on here. Have you ever had this experience? Have I ever had the experience of being dressed as a woman? No, no. (laughs) I mean, thinking something is a date. And the other person does not think it's a date. Dude, dude, my first quote unquote date with Karen. Oh yeah, that's right. You I told you this. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go. I asked her out, wanted to go to the Little Mermaid in 1988. 
and uh and she said let's go to the war of the roses <laughs> which is the least romantic movie in the history of movies uh, <laughs> and i was like oh she doesn't she doesn't get it i remember 1988 no yeah. i i remember before when i was like still kind of floundering around after my previous relationship, uh, there was a girl I was kind of getting to know through because we'd done a couple of classes together. She was a ho- in part of the hosting class, and um, I thought that there was something there, and we were communicating over text or whatever. And then we set up a time to go get a drink, and I thought, okay, it's a happy hour drink. That usually means so. I got all dressed up, picked out a new shirt, showed up, and she's literally looks like she came from the gym. Her hair is still sweaty. Her glasses are on. No makeup <laughs> is on. She's wearing workout pants. And I was like, oh, man, either A, I got it wrong or her friend might have told her, hey, I think this guy's into you. Go dressed up like this. You make the make it very clear to that he's that you're not interested in him. But it was a wake up call for me because I thought we were on one wavelength and we were clearly not on that wavelength at all. So, well, I married mine. You, I guess you didn't, <laughs> I did your story didn't go end up the same way. Well, I'm in a better place. I know that. So. <laughs> Um, when we when we first started, I never actually told you how Jessica Lang booked this gig. Oh yeah, let's talk about. It. So here's how it happened: is that Sydney Pollock's daughter is watching TV and sees King Kong and says, "Hey, Dad, you have to check out this actress. I think you'd really like her." Wow! And that is how he started to think about Jessica Lang for Tootsie, and this was his pitch to her. She is just finishing making uh, Francis, which she was nominated for, which, by the way, remember how I've been talking about this Mel Brooks autobiography yeah. and all the movies he produced that his name's not on? He produced Francis. Wow. Yeah. That's a hardcore Mel- film. Yeah. Mel Brooks is like a fascinating person. Yes, um, and uh, so he so Sidney Pollack calls up Jessica Lange and says, listen, you should say no to this. <laughs> I want you to do this movie. We don't have a script. It's total chaos right now, but you'd be perfect for the role. And she's like, well, why don't you send me some pages that you have? He's like, no, I won't send you anything because it's not good. <laughs> and so, but, but, but I want you to do the movie, but I'm telling you, you really shouldn't do this. I wonder what iteration in the process that was like, what number of script it was. I have no idea. He pitched her the, the thing. So it'd be funny to hear about that. And then as the, as they're going along, he calls her again and says, listen, I still won't send you the script, but we just did this scene for you. I think you'll like it, but you probably don't want to do the movie. And this went on for a long time. And what it sounds like happened was in the course of these conversations yeah. is that she started to become friends with Sidney Pollack <laughs> and really liked him. And and in the end, she's talking to her agents and they said, look, coming off of Francis, this is a serious movie and you you really should do a comedy. And she's like, that's funny. I have a comedy to do. So without ever seeing a script, she finally agreed to take the part. Wow. That's incredible. And she, and she was scared because she comedy. She was not a comedy person. No. Uh, and, and that comes through. You know, dramatic people fear comedy because yeah. it is not easy to do. And the timing of it all. And you can get really exposed as a dramatic actor in a comedy. Yeah. Uh, not that you're limited as an actor, but it can make you be ridiculous. And if you look ridiculous in a comedy, it can affect people seeing you in a dramatic role as well. So it's a hell of a chance to take for a dramatic actor. Well, the thing is, is you know, I, I'm sure I mentioned that quote I love from Jackie Gleason, which is that comedy has an instant critic. And the instant critic is laughter. You either laugh or you don't laugh. It's like you could do a dramatic role 20 different ways and people can have different reactions to your performance and it can still be really good. 
Yeah. You do a comedic role and nobody laughs. It's bad. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Ask Stallone and Oscar. It's the truth. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, but anyway, so, so Dorothy shows up and they have a little bit of small talk. And then there's this moment where she gets startled by the nanny. Um, And this is the first we find out that Julie a has a child, 14 month old girl named Amy and also, you just more and more see these signs of that she's not in control of her life, that this nanny t- bosses her around and is mean to her, that everybody kind of pushes her around. Yeah. And we find her in that state of mind dealing with her life overall as a reflection. Um, I can't say this as a reflection of who she is as a person. So she's in a place of transition as well. So that's the thing you discover here as you see the daughter. She's like, wait, what? She has a daughter and she never mentioned it, never showed a picture to um, Mike or to uh, Dorothy. And, you know, Dorothy at this point is enough of a friend for her to invite her to her house. So how was she not sharing a picture of her daughter with Dorothy? So it's very curious. It's I think the Julie Sandy parallels are really fascinating. And it's not that they're the same person. I mean, Julie and Sandy are very different, right. but they are. Like there's so many things going on of these two people that aren't in control of their lives. Yeah. You know, Julie is in a weird way, a version of Sandy that's successful, you know, but there's still this weird sort of lack of control of their lives. And they talk a little bit more. She asks if Dorothy has ever been married, which, and she says some very strange line about. I was engaged once, though, to a brilliant young actor whose career, unfortunately, was cut short by the insensitivity of the theatrical establishment. It killed him. In a manner of speaking, uh, Sutton uh, gave up acting, and me as well. He, he's working now in a, in a, as a waiter in a, in a disreputable restaurant. <laughs> so, of course... He would use himself as the example because, of course, no one loves him more than he loves himself. So that makes yeah. so much sense. And this is also where we start to see that Julie drinks a lot. Yes. Yes. And we're going to see that come out in a conversation as well. Yeah. Which I think is a very curious part of the movie. Do you worry about using so much heavy makeup on your skin all the time? No, I don't worry. <laughs> I have a little mustache problem, a little sensitive to it. Probably just too many male hormones or something. Such a great moment. And some women do have this issue with mustaches, so. Sure. Tell me about Rome. How much time have you got? Go on. Well, Ron. Ron is hands down best director of daytime drama. Oh, did they tell you not to call it a soap yet? Uh Uh-uh. There was a time when anybody called it a soap opera in front of a civilian reader would find him a quarter. I think that's how she bought a Mercedes. You're not telling me about you and Ron. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Dorothy's questioning her about Ron. Yes. Is this a friend asking another friend about their relationship? Or is this Michael wanting to A, find out about it, or B, is it even Michael sabotaging? I don't know if it's sabotaging it, but it's dude stuff. And this is what dudes do sometimes when, sometimes, a lot of the times, when they see a girl or woman that they're attracted to who's with a guy who's treating them badly. They immediately go into the savior complex, some guys, and I certainly am guilty of this. I've done it in the past. 
where you start to ask them questions about their boyfriend or their significant other, because in a way you're trying to get them to open up about it so they can confront or see through your eyes how terribly they're being treated by that person. And if they see that, you think in some misguided fantasy that they will leave their boyfriend or husband or fiance or whatever it is for you. And I think that's what Michael's doing. Michael's like kicking the tires a little bit or Dorothy, Michael as Dorothy is kicking the tires a little bit to see how committed she actually is to this relationship and how this guy actually, how she actually thinks about how this guy treats her. So he's, he's a little bit fishing so he can possibly sow the seeds of dissent. So to be very honest, yeah, I totally did this. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we talked about men do this. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I, women do it too. I'm sure. I'm know. sure. Oh, I'm sure women. Yeah. Do. I mean, sure. you know, and, and it's funny being the guy that was the fen- friend zone guy, and even with Karen, like I watched Karen date other people in those three years between our first right. quote unquote date and the time that we we actually started dating. Yeah. And so, and and I think I was being a f- good friend, and in, on one level, I was being a good friend because you talk to your friends about their relationships and you're sure. supportive, and that's a thing. And I also always had the ulterior motive, which was, let me talk her out of the situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, and, and also for me, at least the foolish, you know, if only she'll see what a great friend I am, then eventually <laughs> she'll love me. Um, you know. love and war. <laughs> well, that, that, that's one of those expressions that I always go like, is it? <laughs> I mean, first of all, all's not fair in war. There are rules in war that we're know. supposed to obey. There's supposed to be rules in war. How does he treat you? And I love Julie's answer. Ah, that. Well, listen, you don't think I do this without a plan, do you? Which means? There are a lot of men out there. I'm selective. I look around very carefully. And when I find the one I think can give me the worst possible time, that's when I make my move. Yeah, see, her comedy comes from drama. Right. Her comedy does not come from timing and, you know, set up punchline. So, yes, she's in a comedy, but she's not funny necessarily in the comedy. She has moments where that, like that line that's delivered in a way that's kind of humorous, but it's not funny. So I think that's where Jessica fits so well into this movie because it's Dustin who's doing the comedy or Dabney Coleman who's also a you know seasoned comedic performer. It's not her necessarily. She's the drama piece of it all because she's the goal and the the prize, uh, and I know some people might get upset about this, the prize to be won, but she's essentially who he's going after. So right. her playing it serious works really well because you want to you want to care about her the way Michael cares about her. And so you have to see her as a real person. And cutting jokes up all the time wouldn't have let her be necessarily a real person. So in this situation, when you have the occasional moments of humor, it humanizes her. Well, I think this is key to the movie, and I think you just explained it really, really well, because th- you, you just said what Sidney Pollack was saying, how he approached the whole movie, was he yeah. doesn't know how to do comedy. He wanted people to approach it as a drama. And yes, you have someone like Terry Garr, who has right. just, funny is just built into her, and has instincts like, hey, shoot me getting trapped in the bathroom and coming out with a plunger. <laughs> that's not something that Jessica Lange's going to do, you know, but that's Okay. I don't um, know many women that would take the chance to essentially be insinuating that they clogged up the toilet with their poop. That was incredible <laughs> for 1982 for a woman 
to do that as a comedian. So shout out to her. I mean, she, it, she, you know, there's a certain kind of fearlessness of yes. Terry Gar. Um, and, and, and Jessica Lange is there. She, what Jessica Lang said about her character was she's like, I think her character, she thought of it as kind of a symbol, you know, that she mm-hmm. is, because it's what you, it's exactly what you said. She's this sort of idealized prize. She is. Yes. But she plays her in such a human way. Yeah, because um, she's full of of doubts and insecurities, and not from her as an actress. It's doubts and insecurities about who she is as a person. And I think if she had just become the typical, like stereotypical actress, oh, I don't know if I can do this role, I don't know if I can do this part that you've seen in movies. And I don't mean to denigrate that in real life, because obviously every actor questions themselves, but it wouldn't have worked. The fact that she's questioning herself as a human being and she's self-deprecating in um in how she views herself, I think is a really great thing to see in the movie well again it's it's so interesting and i keep going to this sandy thing is that Mm. sandy is super self-aware right of her who she is and what her pain is and so is julie yeah yeah yeah. because sandy goes i want the pain now you know like sometimes i sleep with a man and they see me again and act like i loan the money like that's a very self-aware line yeah and julie's the same right and speaking of sandy that's who we cut to right now is we cut to her alone with yeah. the dinner that she's made for Michael. Yeah. It's Dude, I got so... a lot of thoughts on Michael as we go along, man. That's why I mean, I'm assuming our thoughts are going to line up because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's some real, real stuff there. Um, we're back uh, with Julie and Dorothy and they're working on their lines and, and Michael can't help, but be an acting coach. Yeah. You know, and she says and gives her the direction, answer the question as if you I took you completely by surprise, which is a good direction. Yeah, it is. Why do you drink so much? That's a big boot. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, you just asked her about his her boyfriend. And now you're gonna ask her you're gonna essentially point out something negative. I don't understand the logic of that. And maybe in some way Michael is thinking, I've got to save her, right? That yeah. uh, that again, the fantasy that men have sometimes you gotta save women. And maybe he thinks he's got to save her, so he's got to get her out of this bad relationship, get her to stop drinking. Or it's the other side of it is that he thinks she drinks because of the relationship. So if he gets her to talk about why she drinks, it'll be yet another way for her to kind of – or for him to help sabotage the relationship between her and Ron. Uh, Yeah, I think it's all those things. And Mm. and it definitely is sort of insinuating himself into her personal life. Yes. (laughs) By the way, her response is – Cause it's not fattening and it's not good for me. How many things can you say that about? Who said wine was not fattening? <laughs> what? Is it white wine she's drinking? I don't know what the difference is. I'm not as schooled uh, in that kind of stuff. Uh, all alcohol is fattening. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just tell you that right now. It's, a, it's like drinking. It's like drinking a glass of sugar. <laughs> I mean, it's also complicated, isn't it? What? All of it. Truthfully, don't you find being a woman in the 80s complicated? Extremely. <laughs> uh, by the way, Dustin Hoffman, you know, because I watch all the behind the scenes in the interviews and stuff. He repeatedly brought up this idea that he wanted, which Sidney Pollack was absolutely against, which is that Julie would say something about that she had a really heavy flow Oof. and that D- Michael, not knowing what she meant, Julie asks, have you ever had one? She's like, oh, yeah. How long did it last? And then Dorothy says, a month. <laughs> and Sidney Pollack was like, that's the wrong joke. Yeah. It's the wrong kind. And I totally agree. I think it would have oh, yeah. thrown this scene 
way into a wrong direction. You know what I wish just once? What? That a guy could be honest enough just to walk right up to me and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm confused about this, too. <laughs> I could lay a big line on you. We could do a lot of role playing. But the simple truth is, I find you very interesting. And I'd really like to make love with you. Uh, and there's just a great, great look from Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a relief? Heaven. Sheer heaven. Well, Ron was supposed to come over last night. I had dinner all ready for him. He never showed up. Does that sound familiar, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Son of and a that is when he realizes it. He says, I got to go. He runs home, stumbles getting out of the cab. Uh, and gets to Sandy's apartment, who the first thing she says is, the dinner is burned. Yeah. And he starts fumbling, making bad excuses. He's brought ice cream, and Sandy interrupts him and says, I saw her. What are you talking about? I saw who? When you were so late, I went by your place. When? Tonight, and I waited outside, and I saw that fat woman go into your apartment. Fat woman? <laughs> oh, that's great. I love the, the the vanity that encompasses Dorothy now. Yes. Michael, I don't want to make trouble. I, I never should have people over for dinner. They never show up. Wow. She's just so sad. I know, right? But I will throw this out there. I also think Sandy's the kind of person who's very picky about who she sleeps with. So she aspires to be and picks, like you said, like Julie said, right? Julie's like, I find the one who's the one who's going to treat me the worst. And that's the one I make a beeline for. And look, that's a very common feeling with women sometimes. Certainly I've heard it from a number of women that I've grown yeah. up around and talk about. And so, um, and she's essentially saying the same thing here, right? As you said, the correlation between the two is right there. And, but I also think Sandy is picking these dudes. And in a way, when Sandy actually does therapy, she's going to realize she picked all these guys who had the same personalities because they reflected how she felt about herself. And so that's going to be the situation at the end. So it's self-deprecating, but it's also the something that she's getting something out of, which is why the behavior keeps repeating. Uh, but it's good for the comedic thing of where we're at right now in the, in the film. So I will say two things. The first thing yes. I will say is that I have no evidence of this whatsoever, and yet I am 100% certain that Sandy is already in therapy. Oh, you're <laughs> Sandy, probably right. She's a New York actress in the 80s. Yes, she's true. Everything about her is this is a person who has a therapist. But is she doing therapy to just have someone to talk to every week? Or oh, is she doing I'm not saying she's better. making progress. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but she is in therapy. therapy without progress. The second thing, and it really just occurred to me, is that I think not only did Sandy know that sleeping with Michael was a mistake yeah, yeah. after they slept together, she knew that she shouldn't sleep with him before they slept together. Right. Yes. I think she that six year friendship without having done it. Yeah. Well, and I think she saw the train wreck coming. No, she, she knows Michael is self-involved and, you know, I mean, you know, you're friends with someone for six years. You know, she knows Michael's bullshit. Yeah. And she knows how Michael treats women. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, and yet still Sandy then apologizes to Michael. Yeah. Again. I'm sorry. I feel guilty. You feel guilty. I'm sorry. Don't do that, Sandy. I'm Don't sorry. apologize to me because I'm three hours late. You should be furious. And she can't be furious. She's, you know, she has problems with rage that we saw at the very beginning of the <laughs> movie. She says, you've just been so great to me, Michael, and you were so great to help me audition for that soap. Oh, that soap! <sighs> By the way, did you see that cow they hired? Cow? Oh. 
<laughs> she is awful. Whoa. I heard she was pretty good. Baloney. Yeah, she's supposed to be tough, right? You said she's supposed to be tough? She's not tough. She's a wimp. Oh, well, maybe it's the lines. After all, she doesn't make up her own lines. I think she should. Oh. Cut to Michael on the set. Yeah. With, with this bruised woman in the hospital bed. Uh, and this is Deborah Mooney, by the way, who had a huge, has a huge career, has done, oh. every, you know, worked forever. And she basically did this tiny part as a, as a favor to Sidney Pollack, who's a buddy really? of hers. Oh my yeah. God. And she, lo- Dorothy looks up at the teleprompter and then just goes off and does her own lines. Does she do this because of what Sandy said? Maybe. But it's also a growing feeling like, look, they've let me get away with this much so far. Let's see how far I can push it. I also think Michael is has that instinct of his to see how far he can go before they yank him back. But I love yeah. Deborah Mooney's reaction. I can't work with this. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I also think just as I think that George would have dumped Michael as a client, they would have fired her. You can't just go on set every day on a soap opera and throw out the dialogue. But if it's working and she's creating better scenes, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, clearly that is what the movie is telling us. Yes. So, yeah. You know what? Uh Uh-oh. I think I'm going to give every nurse on this floor an electric cattle prod and instruct them to just zap them in his badoobies. (laughs) Zap them in the badoobies is an improvisation from Dustin Hoffman. I love it. Oh, you know what I found out recently, man? You know the line, bada bing, in The Godfather? We've talked about this. Yes. um, that is an improv line. <laughs> What's improv funny is, is in the moment. Yeah. I found that out yesterday because yes. it was in because James Conn passed away and it was in one of the obituaries. Yeah. I did yeah. not know that. And how that became a thing for the for it's going to be a thing forever, Steve. Now I had to go back and listen to our entire three hour body but <laughs> our three part Godfather podcast to see if I knew that. Did it God. come up because that would you, you sure? would think that would be a thing that would have come up in the research. Yeah, but I don't remember. You, you, I don't know if you want to do that. I don't. You had a tough time that. with Coppola. Remember, you said you you were done with that world, man. Oh, but I well, I, I'm not going to re-listen to our Godfather podcast. Okay, all right. I but, say, but I know I was just exhausted by him and by you know those yeah. two months of our our time. Maybe just listen to the first hour, which I'm sure we get to that scene in the movie. And if I mean, I know where that scene is. I probably could just fast forward to oh, the scene. There you go. Um, but we digress. Um, Hey, time for another montage. Oh yeah. I love this montage. So this is the things are going great. Fan mails coming in. There's photo shoots. We hear the song is like, go Tootsie go. Maybe one of the worst Stephen Bishop songs ever, but yeah. (laughs) Is that Stephen Bishop too? Yeah. I, I think he sings all the songs in here. Oh, does he? Um, yeah, no, it's a dumb song, but a fun montage. You know, she's in the cowboy outfit. She's doing an interview with, you know, Gene Shalit, which they really did do a full improvised interview with him. Uh, there's a photo with Andy Warhol. Like, what is what was Andy doing in that? Like, this is so weird. To see. Whenever he popped up in 1980s movies, I was like, what, what are you what are you doing? Like, what is this all about? So the whole Andy Warhol, the, that, that, by the way, that I'm sure that is totally, they went to the casting director and went, we need some New York personalities for this montage. Yeah. yeah. And they went, Andy Warhol's free, you know, how much can you meet his quote? Give him his 15 minutes of fame. And then we are uh, walking with George and this is the height of the ego. I love this. This is, I love this scene, but also 
isn't Michael stupid? Like Michael's a little stupid, uh, or at least the, the script makes him a little stupid. Like, how do you not know when you're taking all these pictures, when all this fan mail is coming in, when you're doing promotional campaigns, you really think you're going to be done in, in a couple of weeks? Like it's just, it just is an incredible amount of um, short sightedness by Michael to believe that he would be done just at no. the end of his run. They would waste all that time doing pictures and videos and all that. Kind He's of on stuff. the cover of magazines. Yeah. Like, how do you think you're going to be taken away? And not even like soap opera weekly. It was like Ms. And yeah, I think time or something. And so it's like, there's no yeah. way you're going to be just kind of shunted aside at the end of your run. Why can't you give me a special? Please, I could sing as Dorothy. I could use monologues. I feel I have something to say to women. So Listen to me, Michael. Before. You have nothing to say to women. And I love that Sidney Pollack calls him out all through the scene, right? Yeah. He says, you have nothing to say to women, Michael. You're a man. You have nothing yeah. to say to women about this situation. And he's trying to correlate being a woman to being an actor waiting by the phone to get a part and, and yeah. or having you know, your loss of control in your life because a director decides what you do. But that's never been the truth about Michael, as we've seen up until this point. Michael changes lines. Michael uh, uh, argues with directors about going to stage so that the other side of the house can see him. Michael's never been one of these people that's out of control of the situation that he's in. He's completely deluded himself that he thinks he's one of those regular actors, when in fact he's one of the most difficult actors to work with because he rails against the idea of not having control in a situation. So what could he possibly think he has to say to women? And yes, at the base level, he's also a man. Yeah. Well, and I think this is this is what solves what we can call, you know, the 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 white knight complex or whatever. Yes. Is that he is so flawed is that he 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 is deluded enough to believe that he can be the savior of women when really he just needs to get the shit kicked out of him because he's such an asshole. And I love, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I love, by the way, you know, he goes to like, I could do Ophelia. (laughs) (laughs) He's Ophelia. From Hamlet at his yeah. at, the, at the character of Dorothy Michaels, I would love to see that Ophelia. Yeah, I mean Lady Macbeth, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, but Ophelia Still. is supposed to be like fifteen. You out, know, out damn spot, out. I just can't see it. I just can't see Dorothy Michaels doing shit. If I could impart that experience to other women like me, you gotta listen to me, Michael. There are no other women like you. You're a man. Yes, I realize that, of course. But I'm also an actress. By the way, Sidney Pollock describes Dustin. I think this is his nice way of saying this. He says. He describes Dustin as an actor who needed a heightened emotional state to do his best work, which could definitely rub people the wrong way. He's the John McEnroe of actors. Yeah, totally. He needs to be angry to do what he needs to do. But the other thing Sidney Pollack says, and I really like this is very much what I think about directing. He says you can't make an actor do something if they don't want to. Yeah. I fully, fully believe you can't for because if you try to force an actor to do a thing, you're not going to get a good performance. Yeah, true. You know, true. you can, you know, you need to direct them and maybe you need to convince them to want to do the thing that you want them to do, but you can't force them. Okay. We're at this party, Sandy and Michael show up and it is obviously a fancy theatrical New York kind of party. And they walk in, and then who walks in right after but Ron and Julie? Yeah. Immediately, Michael is not paying any attention to Sandy. Right. And he watches Ron go over to the bar, and there's a woman there, and he's immediately flirting with that woman. Well, she says, 
do you recognize me? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I recognize you. Uh, yeah, I was walking over. Complete utter bullshit. He doesn't remember her at all. Of course not. Um, right. And Michael was supposed to be ordering two drinks for him and Sandy. And he's like so caught in a He doesn't even know what to order. And you see him and he, you don't. It, I like that he has this desire to talk to Ron as if he knows Ron, but he doesn't indulge in it. Right. It's just right. that moment where you're like, oh, shit, is he going to which is great tension for a comedy like there's so much going on in this scene and i think this scene is like it's kind of the heart of the movie it's not not in terms of character and performance but in terms of thematically because what happens is is we have ron who's now who's come with julie who is now flirting with another woman you have the producer uh weintraub flirting with julie who's trying desperately to get away from him yeah and you have michael observe this and observe Ron and be totally judgmental of Ron as he's observing him. Yeah. While he's ignoring Sandy, who, by the way, is loading her purse with food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, once again, a great Terry Gar thing. I mean, that yeah. is just such genius. Man, I'm so fucking mad she got MS because yeah. I, I have a feeling we would have had her in so many sitcoms, dude. I mean, just. Oh, yeah. So many sitcoms uh, as either the mom or the grandmom or, of course, obviously through the 80s, the love interest I mean, or the lead, rather. It would have been great to see that, but sadly. Um, But she's so funny here. And the thing is, Michael's observing all this. And I wonder, Steve, if you know how Weintraub is chasing her uh, and saying, oh, the script is not even fully written. It's, you know, what's a terrible script. Wait till we write. Is that, in essence, mirroring how Pollock pitched her the script? Oh, how did I not pick up on that? Of course it is. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then Julie ends up out on the balcony. Michael goes out on the balcony to go talk to her, says, you know, one line about the view. And then and you could just feel this train wreck coming. Oh, yeah. And she's clearly not interested in him at all. And he says, you know, I could lay a big line on you and we could do a lot of role playing. But the simple truth is is that I find you very interesting. And I'd really like to make love to you. Such an idiot. <laughs> the fact that, that Michael thinks this would be a good idea. It's the first line reading he's ever delivered, probably in his career. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. He actually right? went exactly by the script. <laughs> yeah, and she told him, and she, every, she, he imitated how she said it, basically, when she presented it a few minutes earlier in the movie. So, delivered the line exactly as she told him to deliver it in essence. And it totally did not work. So let's break down all the things that are wrong with Michael doing this. (laughs) The first one is, is that Julie told Dorothy this in confidence. Yes. And now he's weaponizing it to sleep with her. Right. The, the second thing is, is that Sandy, he came with Sandy. He was judgmental of Ron, right. who's coming on to another woman, and now he is doing exactly the same thing oh, in yeah. the most crass way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Julie throws a drink in his face, and rightly so, because absolutely I think what Julie was saying was, "I'd like to have a connection with somebody, and then they say this to me." She did not have a connection with him. He didn't read the room or sense the vibe from nope. her that she was not interested. And so dropping that line when she, when the other one, when the other person in the equation is not feeling an interest in you is a complete and utter waste of time and merits the uh, drink being thrown in your face. Um, it, it's what my note at this moment is I really did 
forget how much of an ass Michael is. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, like uh, we've gone from, we're not done yet. Uh, yeah. I mean, we went from the, the scene of sort of, you know, asking about the drinking and asking about Ron with Julie while he's standing up Sandy to then lying to Sandy to then believing that he's God's gift to women yeah. and that he should play Eleanor Roosevelt to now watching Ron come on to some other woman and then immediately coming on to Julie while Sandy's in the next room. I mean, what a horrible fucking person. <laughs> We're back on set. And now we have Julie giving a really good performance as she is telling off Dr. Brewster and everybody, including Dorothy is watching and at cut the whole set breaks into applause. Julie's thrilled with her performance. Michael mouths perfect to her. Yeah. Thanks to my coach. (laughs) No, no, you did it yourself. Perfect. I love the middle. Okay, so much for the mutual admiration society. Let's uh, move on to item 17. Joe, clear this set. And we're seeing the battle, right? We're seeing the battle here for power, right? When Ron walks in thinking he's going to get his ego stroked and it's Dorothy, then he's immediately like, oh, are we done with the mutual appreciation society? Right. When he wouldn't have given a shit if Julie had kissed his butt. Uh, and right. he would have loved the Mutual Appreciation Society. So he's starting to become jealous of Dorothy on a professional level and on a personal level as well, because she is usurping his power that he had over Julie. And Julie is starting to push back a little bit, starting to kind of stand her ground with him, and which is really messing him up. Tootsie, take 10. Ron, my name is Dorothy. It's not Tootsie or Toots or Sweetie or Honey or Dow. Oh, Christ. The semi-eye roll is the best. The semi-eye roll is the best. Yeah. <laughs> no, just Dorothy. Now, Alan's always Alan. Tom is always Tom. And John's always John. I have a name, too. It's Dorothy, capital D-O-R-O-T-H-Y. And she walks out throwing the script down. Which I think is a great... I mean, for a I mean, this is such a great empowering moment because certainly women have complained about this for years. Yeah. Know, for years after this movie, too. Um, by the way, one thing I didn't mention at the beginning is one of the other motivations for Dustin Hoffman doing this movie was his apparently his mom was quite ill at oh, this yeah. time. And so and he had a very close relationship with his mom and his mom's nickname for him growing up was Tootsie. Oh, wow. That's where that comes from. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, totally a mama's boy. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, he goes to talk to Julie apologizes for what happened and then they start talking about the holidays and she invites him to come up to her dad's farm for the holidays is ron coming too would that make a difference and then julie says this line i've always hated women who treat other women as stand-ins for men it's not that really i'd just like you to come and now michael is packing talking to jeff (laughs) And he takes a call from Sandy and again lies and gives the sick voice. Stop packing. Don't do this. Why? You should not do this. My girlfriend loves this movie. Okay, she's seen this movie like 500 times. She thinks Bill Murray's performance... Bill Murray is the hidden gem of the movie. uh, Because he's the one whose compass is pointed in the right direction the whole time. He tells Michael constantly that this is the bad idea to stop doing this stuff, to not do these things, um, even though he is doing this supposedly to get money for his play. Um, yep. He's the one that's constantly. And so even this 
in this moment, he's telling him, don't go up there. You're just going to keep, it's going to get worse and worse and worse the closer you get to her. When you finally reveal what the situation is. He's so, he's so good in this scene and so solid. Yes. And and it's funny too, you know, you're talking about Julie not playing things for laughs. He's not playing things for laughs. Ironically, Bill Murray is not playing things for laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the other interesting things. So, so Bill Murray, before doing this scene, went to uh, catering and said, can I get a plate with a bunch of sliced lemons? And Sidney Pollock's going, what's that for? And he says, I'm going to eat these lemons while we do the scene. Oh, my God. And Sidney Pollock thought that this is the most brilliant acting idea he'd ever heard because, and I totally get it, is you put that lemon in your mouth, you can't not be real. You're going to, every time you put the lemon in the mouth, you're going to have a real reaction. That's true. That's good. And so it, it makes it seem just so grounded. How long can you keep lying to Sandy like this? Oh, come on. It's for her own good. I never told Sandy that I wouldn't see other women. Come on. And if I, you know, if I did tell her, it would only hurt her feelings. And I don't want to hurt her feelings, especially since Julie and I are just girlfriends. Again, he's told four lies in that little sequence of sentences, right? One, yes, he never told her they were, but he's also never told her that they weren't. Uh, And clearly, since he's setting up these dinners constantly and not showing up for them, or clearly they must have had plans that weekend that he's trying to get out of because yeah. Julie invited her. He clearly she thinks this there's more going on. So him playing the willful idiot about it is not a way to get out of it. Ignorance is not bliss in this situation. Like he's willfully saying, and so and he's using the same things that Ron is gonna say to him later yep. about Julie when he confronts Ron about Julie as Dorothy Michaels. And so the inability the uh, the ironic unself-awareness that this actor who is supposedly very aware of who he is as a person to deliver performances that he delivers is fascinating to see in this moment uh and when he says again in the hubris of man it's for her own good i know better for her than she does it's super insulting horrible yeah you said something years ago in a podcast and i don't remember which one but you described a character as a convenient idealist. Ah, yes. I don't remember who, I don't remember what podcast it was, but that's perfect for Michael. He is all this passion and ideals about acting and could pontificate for years, except when it's going to put him in a spot where he has to be honest. Oh, the the world is full of convenient idealists. Yes. Especially in this business. Hey, you know what? We need to bring more people of color into this situation. Ag- oh, sounds good. You're a white person. You got to lose your job so we can bring white person. Well, I don't mean me. I mean in another situation you can bring in people of color. No, it applies to every situation if you're going to complain about it. That's the thing that you find with convenient idealism amongst white people is this idea like, oh, we, I definitely want more people of color involved. Great. It means we're going to have to take projects away from you. Not from me. Uh, you know, and this played out recently uh, in uh, ESPN. Rachel Nichols, who is the daughter of Diane Sawyer, she was recorded in a conversation with a connection to LeBron James, an agent, saying that that they were bringing up this black female sportscaster, and they were going to start maybe giving her more things to do and taking some of the assignments away from Rachel Nichols. And she was complaining to ESPN and to this person, like. Hey, I get it that they have a terrible track record with uh, people of color. I know as a woman they have a terrible track record, but no way are they taking stuff away from me to give to a woman of color. Don't They don't get to work out their issues with diversity on me. And it's like, well, no, that's actually how it fucking works. 
So it's just fascinating, convenient idealism, man. I'm just afraid that you're going to burn in hell for us. I don't believe in hell. I believe in unemployment, but I don't believe in hell. <laughs> Let's head off to the farm. Let's do it. Montage time. I love a little bit where they're getting the, the luggage out of the car. And, he, and Charles Durden goes, here, let me help you with those. Wow, those are heavy. Strong little thing, aren't you? <laughs> I love that moment, right? He's like, whoa. <laughs> um, so good. I think this sequence at the farm is so critical to the movie. Oh, yeah. And it's such a change. You know, like the pace of it is different. The style of it is different. You know, we just go to a different world. We get there. First thing we find out, they're going to be sharing a room and a bed together. And then we get this montage of we're out on the tractor. He's teaching her how to milk a cow. Mm-hmm. Um, he watches Dorothy watches Julie ride a horse bareback in a beautiful shot. They're playing with the baby. And I love the moment where first he takes the baby and doesn't know how to hold the baby and then starts to pay attention to the baby and like holding the baby. It's a good slow pan right because you get a real idea of, of his connection with the child yeah yeah and of course the song as you said it's we get another Stephen bishop song this one this played a lot in the 80s this was the oh. hit it's telling me it might be you all of my life and it's funny and they're eating dinner and there's kind of this weird triangle of michael just totally locked on to watching julie and less totally locked on to watching Dorothy. Yeah, I wondered if this was an homage to Some Like It Hot, because obviously Joe, was it Joe E. Lewis or Joe E. Brown? Oh, yeah. Has the interest in Jack Lemmon, but Jack Lemmon yep. has the interest in Marilyn Monroe. So it's just like you, you've yep. seen that. So I wonder if this was a little bit of that playing out. I had such a feeling of dread, basically. Yeah, oh, yeah, because because yeah. Durning is so good here. Yeah. Even with his backwards of of backwards conversations that he has later about roosters and chickens. He's still like, you can tell he's a, he's a salt of the earth guy. He's a yeah. genuine guy. And certainly when we hear more for, about his backstory about uh, Julie's mom, like there's a real genuineness to this guy. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you, Steve, you start to feel this concern of like, Oh shit, how's this going to play out? Yeah. By the way, I meant to mention earlier, um, Owen Roisman, who is the cinematographer who worked with Sidney Pollock on a ton of movies, mm. Uh, lighting Dustin Hoffman as Dorothy was not easy. Oh, really? Yeah, because it had to be, the light had to be very, very soft. Any kind of harshness in the light, and you would see his shadow, you know? <laughs> Plus, you know, how far back can you pull? How do you pull back? <laughs> <laughs> so um, good. So good. <laughs> Dorothy and Julie are sitting on the swing. Julie has the baby. It's special up here, isn't it? I'm glad you came. Can I tell you something? Sweetheart, do you think he was going to tell? That's my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was going to open the door to it, yes. Yeah. I think in that moment with, you know, he's all caught up with love. Because I think this weekend, as you said, Steve, this is a critical section of the film. This is the weekend that he fell in love with her, right? I think before, because of the idea of, I think he was infatuated with her, wanted to sleep with her. But this is the weekend where everything kind of changed. And I think holding the babies, you said, the fact that you see him be uncomfortable about it, but as it progresses, he starts to feel more comfortable with it. It's because he's starting to glimpse the possibility of being a stepdad. Um, yeah. So all of that, or her stepdad, rather, all of that is is passing through here. And yes, sometimes when you go away, you get out of the city, you smell the fresh air, you can get caught up in the moment and reveal some things that you probably shouldn't be revealing. Um, and certainly here, it feels like he's about to do it. Um, 
and then less comes up. I, I like the way you put it that he's opening the door to maybe doing it. I like yes. that. Yeah. I think it's actually, I, I agree with you, but I also think, I think it's even more is going on. Yes. He, this is definitely where he truly falls in love with Julie. Yeah. But I also think New York actor, Michael Dorsey is changing who he is in this sequence. Uh, good point. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he's in, the, he's been in the crazy New York actor world and now slowing down and just with good people who enjoy each other's company. Yeah. It, I don't think he's experienced this kind of world before. That's why I love it here in San Diego. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Charles Durning sits down on the same side of the swing with oh Michael. Which, How uncomfortable is that situation? <laughs> it puts a shawl around her shoulders and we're, and it's so funny. The, Oh boy. Yeah. By the way, there's this moment where Charles Durning like slaps a mosquito or something mm. um, and startles. That's totally improvised. And that did startle Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> um, and then we're inside and, you know, Michael's or Dorothy's playing the piano and we're singing and telling stories. She tells some story about her dad getting drunk yeah. and almost shooting a cow. And then Charles Durning asks, you know, start singing Mary, the George M. Cohen song. Right. He has a total james cagney as george m cohen kind of voice do you know what i mean yeah i haven't watched that movie in forever i i, I don't think it's a cinephiles movie oh, Yankee Doodle Dandy? Yeah. Oh, yeah but i do like watching james cagney's weird tap dancing <laughs> the, the guy was a tap dancer yeah before he became an on-screen actor yeah he did musical theater all the time well and so did charles durning yes yes and Julie says, "Okay, I'm going to go to bed." And there, and it ends up that Dorothy doesn't. Dorothy doesn't want to go to bed yet because she's nervous about being in the bed with Julie. Right. And Les doesn't want to go to bed yet because he wants to stay up with Dorothy. Yeah. And Julie, the last thing she says is, "Be good." What is she thinking is going on? They're going to hook up. Yeah. Yeah. And that may have. Do you think that was the reason? She wanted her to come up. Did her dad kind of put her up to it? And she, it, it, or did she sense that her dad, like they've had off-screen conversations where her dad has expressed interest or has talked about Dorothy so much that Julie is picking up that her dad is interested in it. And because as we find out later when they're in bed together, Julie says, you know, I tried so hard to get him to date after mom passed or mom left or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I think she brought him up brought Dorothy Michaels up as a friend, but also to possibly set her up with, uh, with her dad. I think all of the above. That's, I, that's, I, that's what I think. I think that's all true. No, I thought you'd be more like one of those, you know, one of them liberators. Well, no, you know, I'm not really like the woman you see on the show. I mean, that's just a part. I'm not all that militant. I think Les's speech here is a beautiful for his character. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for this equal business. I think women ought to be entitled to have everything and all, etc. Except sometimes I think what they really want is to be entitled to be men. Jesus. You know, people still saying this in 2022 there, uh, Steve. I mean, and well, but and this is the thing. This is absolutely right for his character. Yeah, for his character. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And now they have all this stuff about... How much you should be like the other sex, so you can be all more the same. Well, I'm sorry, but we're just not, you know? Right. Not on a farm, anyway. Bulls are bulls, and roosters don't try to lay eggs. Never. Which, of course, is a very pig-headed point of view now, uh, when you look at it. And I think if you were to ever redo this movie, this speech would find Dorothy pushing back on him a little bit uh, in certain comments, right? I mean, the idea that 
you know, men, men were really, no, but men have privilege. There is male privilege in a patriarchal society. So they have advantages that a lot of women do not, or that almost all women do not have. And so that's the pushback there, right? This idea of this. And of course, what he's talking about is not only just switching gender roles, but this idea of switching gender identity, which is something that's very big nowadays in our world as we become more accepting, at least the ones who are, you know, uh, a little more open-minded progress uh, and progressive about this idea, you know, but he is a salt of the earth guy. He's out there in the country, you know, he's got certain things that he uh, points of views. He's from an older generation. That's what he's expressing in these moments, you know, which is ironic, of course, because it's a man dressed as a woman, which is the comedy on so many levels. So. Right. Now, my wife and I, we were married a lot of years. People got it all wrong, you know? They say your health is the most important thing, but I can lift this house off the ground. What good is it? Being with someone, sharing. That's what it's all about. Yeah. That's what kind of saves him from that speech in that moment is those last lines. It's funny. I kind of look at it differently, I think, is that I, because I just look at it from the writing perspective of just like, yeah, it's that a great the right speech for that guy at Absolutely. that moment, you know, yes. agreed. And, and, and this is the thing is that he's a really, really good guy. The, the fact that his, he has opinions, which even in 1980, I probably would have disagreed with. Yeah. Doesn't mean that he's, it doesn't change the fact that this is a really good guy, you know? Mm he asks if she wants another drink and she says, no, you know, and it's time to go to bed. And he looks at her and says, you have beautiful eyes and you could see how much he wants to kiss her. (laughs) And she totally dodges him and heads off to bed. Charles delivers it. So great. That line too, right. As an actor watching it, because it's delivered like a discovery. Like, you know what? You have really beautiful eyes. It's almost as if he hasn't a hundred percent taken her in. And in that moment, he really does. And it's so sweet. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I I love that she has to prep her makeup and hair in order to go to bed, (laughs) you know. Um, And they get in bed together. And this is where Julie, as you said, talks about trying to get dad to date other women after mom died. Well, she must have been a very special person. I guess so. I don't remember her very well. I remember her helping me pick out this wallpaper. And the speech that Julie has here, there was a lot of debate about whether or not this was too corny. And when Jessica Lange finally did it, they just went, oh, no, this is. And it really is a lovely little monologue. I think it could have been corny in another lesser actress's hands. Yeah. And this is why you cast Jessica Lange. Because this is a really vulnerable speech that she's delivering, remembering her mother, and also the symbolism of the blooming of the flowers, and also the fact that she dreamed how many dreams or plans those those wallpapers have seen. So clearly she's a girl who wanted to get out from this small town and go do something else with her life, go be bigger with her life. And so it's, it's, it's a great window into who Julie is as a person. Well, and it's just, I mean, it's so on the nose, but it, it works so perfectly poetically of like, yeah. she is a person who is waiting to blossom. Yes. Right. You exactly. Know? Herself. Yes. Absolutely. And he reaches out very slowly and touches her. That's nice. My mother used to do that too sometimes. Here's what Dustin Hoffman said about this moment. He said, in this moment, that reaching out to touch her came from Dorothy, not yeah. Michael. 
Yeah, I could buy that. I could buy yeah. that. I really think there is something so transformative about acting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have way more experience at this than me. But in my experience, I can't not feel things when I start acting. Yeah, sure. The emotions happen, you know. You hope. You hope that's how, that's what happens. So yeah. the fact that you can is is such a positive because that's those are the things that are what motivate you to deliver the lines in an organic and honest way, which is what the audience wants to see. Uh, yeah. And I agree with you, Steve. When I watch this movie, at no point do I think I'm seeing Michael in drag. It is such no. a believable Dorothy Michaels that in no point do I think that's not Dorothy Michaels when it's Dorothy Michaels. Um, there's a story I heard years ago, and and, and uh, I've always wondered if I'd ever have a chance to tell this story on on the mm. podcast, which is, uh, you know, Oliver Sacks is, yeah, yeah, the um, as a therapist or psychiatrist, so he's a neuroscientist, and Sorry. he's the guy that Awakenings is based yeah, on, right, exactly, yeah. and he also wrote, you know, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, and I've read, he's a he, he passed away a few years ago, but he's just this lovely person. I've read all, a bunch of his books, yeah. and uh, in one of his books, he's talking about being on the set of Awakenings and working with Robert De Niro because he 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 is the actual doctor that Robin Williams's character is based on, right? And that there are these people that had this uh, you know version of Parkinson's where they you know, and they there were certain tests that you could do that to see if they have this condition. And what he said was these tests are not fakeable, and that Robert De Niro when he they did the test on him when he was acting and it came out that he actually had this neurological disease <laughs> and, and Oliver Sacks is like, this isn't possible, you know? And yet there is actually something that was going on in Robert De Niro's mind in his brain wow. when he was acting wow. that made this happen. And I just, that's what I just think about. Like, no, wow. you, there are real things that go on. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's like when they do, they do, they've done um, fMRI tests and they, mm-hmm. And they have someone like an athlete visualize doing their sports and the parts of the brains are firing when they're visualizing that are the same parts of the brains that you would use to actually do the thing. Right. Like when we're imagining stuff, there's more happening than us just playing pretend. Especially if you're a great one like De Niro. Yeah. Or And like Dustin Hoffman, you know. And Dustin Wright, who have yeah. masters over their bodies. Yeah. yeah. So we're back on the set and Dorothy gets a box of chocolates from Les. Now, don't you dare eat any of those. You don't want to ruin that cute figure of yours. What a thoughtless present to give a woman. I thought that was such an odd line. And listen, George Gaines is a great comedic guy as well. So I thought that was such an odd line to deliver. What, that what do you think it means? I don't what, know. What? That's why I was saying it was such an odd line. What a, what a horrible present to give to a woman. Is he from a different time where... That is an abhorrent present because it is of such little value in terms of monetary value. Or does he think it's terrible because it it, it gets a woman fat? That's or what does I he, think. Is that what you think? Okay, okay. That's what I always responded to it as. Okay. Yeah. I, like, yeah. This doesn't someone say, well, don't eat those, Dorothy, because you got to fit into whatever. Yeah. G- g- uh, what's Gina her name? Davis. Uh, Gina right. Davis says it. Davis says that. So, yeah. So, maybe that is the point of it because I was just like so weirded out by his response. What a horrible present to give to a woman. Because he doesn't say actress. He says woman. Yeah. So, it just seems interesting. You know, Dorothy, you're a complicated lady. On the one hand, you're a real pain in the ass. However, we're getting 2,000 letters a week and we picked up three share points. And it's largely due to you. You're a breakthrough lady for us. We're picking up your option. You'll be with us another year. 
So he calls up George trying to get out of his con, you know, saying, you got to get me out of it. And George is like, you can't. You signed a contract. You get me out of this. I don't care how you do it or I'm going to go in right now and tell him. And now George is upset. Tell him what? Michael, we're talking major fraud here. Major fraud. You can't tell him. What about me? You think anybody's going to believe I wasn't in on this? I mean, I mean, they'll kill me. What do you think about this moment here? Because Michael is so, he's again, conveniently stupid, right? In this saying, oh, I signed the contract is what they put in front of me. This guy is so vigilant about everything else. He didn't read the contract. He didn't think so. It's this interesting moment that we give him, we give that character a little bit of stupidity that doesn't seem to make sense with the character you've presented to us for the whole movie. But I also think it's ironic that now it's, George, who's the one that's convincing him that he has to keep doing this. When George has been the one telling him to stop doing this, I think it's great. No, well, and what was the opening scene with George? You have to get me a job, and yeah. else you have to get me out of the job. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, by the way, I totally believe that Michael didn't read his contract. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's not the same thing as the convenient idealist, but it is no. absolutely the, you know, totally full of himself actor right. who doesn't actually pay attention to a bunch of stuff that's really important you know right. and lots of people don't read their contracts hmm. and now he's in bed uh jeff is there you know maybe there's a morals clause in your contract perhaps if dorothy did something really filthy or disgusting they have to let you go but i really can't think of anything filthy and disgusting that you haven't already done on your show <laughs> and as he's sitting talking to Jeff, the phone rings and it's Julie who says it's sort of an emergency. Are you sure you want to do this? No, but I'm going to. Oh, I've been fooling myself about Ron for too long now. I guess I really wanted you here for moral support, Dorothy. So what's going to happen is she says she's going to break up with Ron. You have influenced me, though, Dorothy. I've been seeing Ron through your eyes lately. Julie, I don't want that responsibility. Why not? Why shouldn't you influence me? Listen, you wouldn't compromise your feelings like I have. You wouldn't live this kind of lie, would you? Man, that hits. Yeah. Now Michael's thing, which I guess as Dorothy, he was kind of maybe subconsciously or inadvertently influencing Julie, ironically, to leave Ron. And now she's going to do it. And the, Michael's first response is, don't put that on me. And it's like, well, no, dude, you started this. You started this. So you got to take responsibility for what it leads to. I'll live, won't I? Maybe not happily, but honestly, sounds like something you'd say. Well, and when you're having the scene where someone is saying, you inspired me because you would never live dishonestly in your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While you're wearing a dress and lying to the person that you're dating. Yeah, and then Ron shows up, and uh, Julie goes off to get ready. You don't like me, do you? I mean, I can respect that, but there's uh, there's not many women I can't make like me. Why don't you like me? The idea of this scene, this is how Dustin Hoffman described it, is that this was a scene of Michael talking to himself and Dorothy talking to Michael. Interesting. Uh, which I think totally makes sense. I don't like the way you think Julie. Oh. Mm -hmm. I don't like the way you patronize her. I don't like the way you deceive her. I don't like the way you lie to her. What do you mean? You want me to go on? And I love Dabney Coleman in this scene. He is so good in this scene. I'm glad you said that, Steve. Because this guy, I like him after this scene, which is crazy. Because I've spent the whole film not liking him because he is clearly not good to Julie. But in this scene, 
he is not mad at Dorothy for pointing out all his flaws. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't like the anger you saw flash across his face when he was on set with her, usurping his authority. That's where he finds the true offense, not in being called out for always treating Julie. And he actually is really, and, and, and it's so great the way they stage it. Cause um, you know, as a director, I'm sure you can speak to this Steve more than I can. Hoffman is above and Ron is, I mean, Dorothy is above and Ron is sitting down with his, yeah. hands clasped in between his legs so almost of a submissive position and he's totally act, uh, giving dorothy all the credit for pointing and he actually admits all this stuff about himself in the subsequent next few seconds of the scene which i really love i think there's this weird so Les is a really good guy yes ron is not a really good guy right but there's this weird thing about this scene being a very honest scene that parallels them in this weird way do you know what i mean because mm -hmm. as soon as dorothy says you want me to go on he says no i know what you mean right and then this honesty is really powerful look dorothy i i never promised julie i'd be exclusive i never said i wouldn't see other women it's just that i i know she doesn't want me to see other women so i lied to her to keep from hurting her and the reaction from dustin hoffman at that line yeah because it's literally exactly what he said about sandy yep Right? I'm doing what's best for her. Yeah. Just like he said he was doing what's best. Just like he said. That's very convenient. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Look, look at it from my side. See, see, if a woman wants me to seduce her, I, you know, I usually do. But then she starts pretending like I promised her something. Then I start pretending like I promised her something. But I mean, in the end, I'm the one that's exploited. That's where he lost me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's where. No, he's not a good person. No, he's not, I guess. Yeah. Because, yeah, but it's also what Michael's essentially been doing, right? Because it's exactly what Michael's been doing. Yeah, so it's all it's all there. He's coming face to face with himself. Bullshit, Ron. You know what? I'll understand you a lot better than you think I do. And then Julie comes out and says, don't worry, the baby never wakes up. <laughs> It'll be no problem. Cut to screaming baby montage. Right. City <laughs> Paul talked about like that this was the nicest baby and it was really hard it wasn't fun because their job was to make the baby cry, Ugh. you know? Um, so there's all sorts of silliness. And then including ending with a, a shot of him passed out and snoring while the baby is just running rampant. And then, but the, by the time Julie gets back, then everything is all cleaned up. Tell the truth now. Are you sure you're all right? No. <laughs> Why? Who am I going to have dinner with? Which is Sandy. Yeah. Yeah. But also, it's just that thing, too, at the beginning, right? She was, at the beginning of, the, of this whole sequence, she was gung-ho about it. No, I've got to do what's best. I've, you're, you've influenced me, blah, blah, blah. So, in a way, she's not really doing it because she wants to do it. She's doing it because she's being influenced by someone else, right? And so, how honest is this decision? And then when it's over, she's sitting there with the ramifications of the decision. And instead of feeling like she did the right thing, she is feeling like, oh, God, now what? Because who do I have dinner with? And it's like, why didn't that idea occur to you before? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure. I mean, you must have had this where you where you quit the job and then go, oh, shit. And you know it was right to quit the job. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, I made a lot of decisions that were hard decisions that I knew were right and then had to freak out right after. Yeah, I guess. Something funny. What? And I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But since I met you, I'm so grateful to have you as a friend. And yet, at the same time, I've never felt lonelier in my whole life. 
That's a great line, isn't it, Steve? Because yeah. like what she has done, Dorothy Michaels, is exposed the lie that uh, Julie was living in in her life, right? Because yeah. she's not as fully expressed. She sees a very powerful woman like Dorothy. And look, remember, Dorothy comes off as in her 40s, and here's a woman in her 20s. And so she's seeing a woman who's been through the wars of life right. and feels like she's got a strong, powerful presence. And she wants that. And so in comparison, she finds herself lacking. And that's what makes her feel even more alone. Well, and I think, too, as much as we might think Ron is a jerk, my guess is Ron was a fun date. You know what I mean? Like they went to the theater and they went out to fancy parties and he was charming and he was, you know, I'll I'll go even one further, Steve. Ron helps her to not have to spend time with herself because clearly she doesn't want to spend time with herself. It's as though I... I want something that I just can't have. You know what I mean? And there's this long pause, and you could just feel it coming. And Dorothy just leans in and goes for the kiss. Dorothy? Dorothy? Oh, no, please don't say anything. But there's a reason. Uh, I understand the no, reason. No, 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 that reason's not the reason. See, I'm not the person you think I am. And it starts chasing her. No, it's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. It's... I'm just not well-adjusted enough. I mean, I'm sure I've got the same impulses. I mean, obviously, I did have the same well, don't impulses. Don't jump to conclusions about that impulse. That impulse is a good impulse, Julie. If you can just see me out of these clothes, I... No, 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 no. <laughs> she goes, oh, my God, no, no. <laughs> and then right in the midst of this is is that, well, you've got to tell my father. And he calls. And, yeah, and he calls right at that moment, and now it's she has to go out tonight. Tonight? So here's what Larry Gelbart, so Larry Gelbart, you know, was off the script and then comes back on the script much later. And this sequence, so all of the, this element of kind of farce that we're now going into, yeah. this structure was really set up by Elaine May. Because Elaine May introduced the Sandy character. Elaine May is who really fleshed out Julie's, the Julie relationship. Right. And then Larry Gelbart comes in and he goes, there's no way all of these things can happen in one night. And he's totally right. This is a ridiculous long, long night. Yes, it is. And, and what Sidney Pollock said, he's like, look, we either got them or we don't. If at this point yeah. we don't have them, it doesn't matter. And if we do have them, they'll accept this, you know. Well, because it's New York. A yeah. New York night can fill a lot. You can do a lot in a New York night. Yeah, I've I've had that night. Yes, <laughs> I I I can remember being in the bar with our friend Sarah Foster, oh, who knew yeah. the bartender after, and the bar closed, and we stayed drinking in that bar until almost six in the morning. Wow, because she was friends with the bartender. I had that night in London where we went <laughs> ten different bars and. Starting at 7 p.m. And I didn't get home till 5.30 in the morning. Those are, insane. The, insane. Those, are, those are the nights of my youth. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, I don't, I don't quite have those gears. So we end up at a jazz club with Les. Uh, and they dance together and just get some autographs. And then Les proposes. You know, I only took two pictures of my whole life. My high school graduation and my wedding. And my wife was standing next to me in both of them. I never thought I'd want anybody to fill her place. All that changed last weekend. I mean, they haven't even been on a date. Nope. And there he goes. I know this is kind of quick, but that's how I am. Never did believe in not getting down to it. It's just so sweet. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about like that's 
the ability of an actor to just play honest is so hard. Yeah. yeah. And Charles Durning is just, there's no spin on it. He's just speaking the truth. Oh, don't say anything. Oh, no. I know it's fast. See, I don't take some time to think about it. Please. And if the answer is no, well, at least I'll feel you took me seriously enough to think about it. Would you, would you mind, but I just need to be alone. I'd like to start thinking it over as soon as possible. (laughs) And she rushes off, gets in a cab, gets home, and who is waiting at her house? Yeah. But John Van Horn. Dorothy, this is a nightmare. Could I come up for a drink? No, you cannot come up. I have a terrible headache. No. And she leaves him all alone, looking lovelorn on the set, goes up to the apartment, and then we hear him singing. I'm no then and there. The singing thing was in the script. It's one of the things Sidney Pollock really didn't like. He was really? like, it's not going to work. It's no good. I, I, I shouldn't do it. So George Gaines is in the audition and he sings in the audition because you got to see if the guy can sing. And it was him singing in the audition that made Sidney Pollock go, oh, this is totally going to work. <laughs> so he starts singing. Um, I'll know when my love comes along from guys and dolls. <laughs> and of course, it's New York. So people start yelling and she says, OK, come up, come up. What is it that couldn't wait, John? What? I'm just an untalented old has-been. And she asks, Were you ever famous? No. Then how can you be a has-been? <laughs> Dorothy. Yes. I want you. I beg your pardon. I've never wanted a woman this much. Oh, please, John. Please, perhaps another time. And he gets physical with her. Yeah. And she is trying to fight him off. I don't want to get involved emotionally at this time. <laughs> then I'll take straight sex. I don't want to hurt you. I don't mind. Oh. So this scene is played for laughs. Yes. And it couldn't be seen with laughs because it's two men, right? We know that it's a man. But the line he says later after Jeff walks in. You slut. The tossaway line almost. Don't, 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 don't start in with me. Don't, don't, don't do that. Rape is not a laughing matter. Is really chilling watching it now in 2022, right? And I've seen this movie many, many times. But at no point did it that line ever kind of occur, uh, like affect me because I'm like, oh, it's, it's two guys, right? It's a different, it was never going to happen that way. But now watching it, you know, especially with everything that's happened with Me Too and listening to women more and reading about more of these kinds of things and get, educating myself about women's point of views more, um, it's a actually kind of very chilling scene to watch now because, of course, Van Horn doesn't know that he's a man. And he has invited himself up. He is saying to her to force her to invite. And she's just being nice, which a lot of women say that's how they get into these situations. They're just being nice to not cause any kind of trouble or have a confrontation because men can be quite intimidating. And so she, Dorothy Michaels, Michael, as Dorothy Michaels, defaults to being nice because he doesn't want to get embarrassed as well because he's out there doing this in front of everybody, uh, not caring how it embarrasses her. And so he invites, she invites him up. He gets in there. First thing he says to her is, can you give me a drink? As if getting him drunk or inebriating him is the right thing to do. So she does. And the first thing he does is go after her and then says, well, fuck it. I'll just let him settle for sex. As if like there's a a menu on the table of what you can have from Dorothy and her body. And so it's really kind of, and you know, some of you probably listen going, it's just a fucking scene. I get it. But there is stuff to analyze here, and that's what we do on the cinephiles. And so there's a lot more happening here when you're looking at it in 2022 eyes that can be quite chilling, you know, because he does say, if you didn't come in, I I, I was going to get raped. 
And I was going to be on the front page of the New York Daily News. So that's a hardcore line to be saying, even though it's kind of tossed off in the scene. It's a strong line to think about because Van Horn doesn't know that that's a man in a woman's dress. So I have have multiple thoughts and some of them conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, But first of all, we used to think rape was funny. I mean, that's, you know, just to put it like if you watch Pepe Le Pew cartoons, right, that's the whole joke. Yeah. You know, he's trying to. Yeah. You know, I can't remember every detail from some like it hot, but there's, you know, there's similar sort of things that go into that movie. The the idea. Well, and and so that's one thing. And and I'm glad that we are not I'm not showing my kid Pepe Le Pew cartoons. You know, we don't need to go down the whole you know, line of 16 candles and all these other things. But, right, right, right. but like that was sort of standard. But the, here's the contradictory thing I'll say, which is that often comedy allows us to look at a thing and, and understand it in a new way, in a way that drama doesn't. So this movie, which is a comedy is all about these issues, yes. you know? The, and so, yes, it's handled very lightly that we call him the tongue that yeah. this is a guy who is sexually harassing all the women on the set and it's handled, but it, but that is forcing us to look at this thing. And then the third thing I'll say, and this is what, this is where it really isn't funny. But if we, if we imagine, as, as you said, this is what we do on the cinephiles. Yeah. Is this the first time John Van Horn has done this? No, it is not. I am certain. I mean, we know that he gropes and sticks his tongue down women's mouths on the set, but I don't think this is unusual. I think he has done this before. I think he well, is a rapist. And, uh, yes, I agree with you. And I think, you know, this is him as an old man, a wa- as yeah. he claims to be a washed up hazmat. So think about the fact 20, 30 years ago when he was young and an actor in all of his strength, he must have forced himself on quite a few women. Yeah, no, it's 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 fucked up. Yeah. But it is also very funny. And when Jeff walks in, right. Oh my god. And his by the way, Bill Murray thought that this actor was a genius and he kept cracking Bill Murray up. Bill Murray kept losing it on the set. He <laughs> couldn't look at this guy and not laugh. But his deadpan of oh, just yeah. standing there is hilarious. Oh, he's great. It's it's He's from an the he's from another time, Steve. So for him, it's like, oh, I violated some level of uh, some manhood line by trying yeah. to physically assault another man's woman in their apartment. So he is mortified from the yes. embarrassment of it. Yeah, not from attempting to rape a woman. It's more that he's insulted another another. That man it was another person's woman. Line. Yeah, yeah. Copy guy. I think it's best. This comedic beat between them is brilliant. When they use each other's first name. I want you to know for the record, Jeff, that nothing happened here tonight. Thank you, John. And that's such a great, those two, as you said, a guy that could crack Bill Murray up, Bill Murray concedes the comedic high ground in that moment. It's great. It's great. And then right in the midst of this, Sandy shows up. She's knocking on the door. So now there's all sorts of chaos where he's, you know, got to get out of his Dorothy outfit, yelling that he's in the shower. Bill Murray is running around. By the way, Bill Murray stubs his toe really, really badly. And it was apparently in a lot of pain in the middle of the scene and kept going with the scene. Um, I love, and this is so obviously a Bill Murray improvisation. He says to Sandy, All my clothes are in the other room. I was asleep. I was dreaming. It's funny, you were in my dream. You had real big teeth, but you were still a nice person. I had big what? 
<laughs> that's just a line where it's like, I don't know what that is, but that is hilarious. Yeah, and Sandy tries to play with. She's like, "What? I was in your dream? I was doing what?" And she's just trying to play along with it. Um, and finally, Michael gets out of the shower, and then he brings out those chocolates that Les gave to him. Oh, and a card. No, 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 no! I was very, very, very angry when I wrote that. Thank you for uh, the lovely night in front of the fire. Missing you, Les. This isn't even for me. This is another girl's candy. Oh, I, I wouldn't give you another girl's candy, I swear. Well, then whose is it? Fine. Again, what's amazing about Michael being a terrible person, yeah. he's still a terrible person. Yes. You know what is. I mean? Yes, he is. He has a chance to tell the truth and he won't. A guy named Les is sending you candy? Yes. He's a friend of mine. He can't eat candy. He's diabetic. Why is he thanking you for a lovely night in front of the fire? My mind's a blank. <laughs> <laughs> I've run out of lies. <laughs> Michael, are you gay? In what sense? Michael, just be honest with me. Tell me the truth. For once in your life, tell me the truth. Because these stories, they are very demeaning to me. They... No matter how bad the truth is, it doesn't tear you apart inside like dishonesty. Dishonesty. At least it leaves you with some self-respect and some dignity. That's a great line. It is a great line. Yeah. And she's right. I'm not going to lie to you anymore. I'm going to tell you the truth, Sandy. I'm in love with another woman. Oh, my God. The reaction, Steve, the scream from Terry Gar is so great. Interesting that you say that. Oh. She did not want to scream. What? She refused. She's like, I don't want to scream. It's too far. It's too far. And Dustin Hoffman pushed her. Sidney Pollock pushed her. She's just like, I can't find the truth, and I don't, I, I don't believe it. And they pushed her and pushed her. And then finally, when she did the scream, everything after this, that scream changed. And she just went, it took so much to get her there emotionally. Yeah, but yeah. once she did it, she just went off. And I cannot believe that this is true. But what they said is that her next monologue is improvised. Wow. But let's not pretend that we're something else. We're going to lose everything we have. I never said, I love you. I don't care about I love you. I read the second sex. I read the Cinderella complex. I'm responsible for my own orgasm. I don't care. I just don't like to be lied to. It's amazing what she does. If that is an improv, it is one of the best improvs ever. And it's topical, right, Steve? Because those were the books that were out at that time that women who are coming into being empowered in the 1980s and being part of the workforce and changing the, the gender dynamics, these were the books they were reading, right? And so it was great to see. And this idea of I'm responsible for my own orgasm, it's so great. I just I, love it. The, so, the, the just, yeah. it's, I agree with you. I, there's some things where I go, yeah, yeah, I totally buy that that's, or, that's you know, Bill Murray talking about people coming in out of the rain. It's like, yeah, totally. It totally sounds improvised. The I'll get him in the baboozles or whatever that thing Dustin Hoffman yeah. said. Totally see this monologue. I it's beyond description that she came up with that in that moment. It happens though, man. The great actors, dude, can slide into them um, a zone like a great athlete does, and whatever they shoot, how from wherever they're shooting on the court, or however they're swinging the bat, or however they're throwing the football. For whatever reason, they reach a nirvana zone where everything is working out for them. And so maybe in some way, the emotion that she had to channel, and maybe the reason she didn't want to scream is because it was going to channel or unlock an emotion from a real relationship that she'd had in her yeah. real life, Terry Gar. 
comes pouring out. And so the words come pouring out that she might have said in that argument, but also through the worlds of the Sandy character that she has spent so much time creating for the film. So I can absolutely buy that she improved all of this on the fly because she might have hit some zone and she delivered this perfectly. You know what I'm discovering in the course of this conversation, and that's what's so great about doing this show with you, is yeah. that I am f- understanding Sandy is yeah. that the way Sandy is pre- – Sandy is like a great con game because the way she is presented in the movie yeah. is that she is not pitiful, but that she's a sad sack. You know what I mean? Right. Like she's kind of dorky. She's she's not really in that much because she's you know not that good an actress. She's kind of desperate and all this stuff. As we're talking, I'm like, no, Sandy is the best person in the movie. She's yeah, like this inc- Sandy and Jeff are the two best people in the movie. And she's incredibly wise. Yes. You know, is. like her whole thing about giving the pain now, that's nice. that's deep wisdom. Yes. You know, and she's incredibly kind. And in this moment, she again, it's amazing wisdom. Please tell me, what can I do? For there's you? nothing you can do for me. I just have to feel like this until I don't feel like this anymore. And you're going to have to know that you're the one that made me feel this way. Yeah, that is that is right. You know, that's, that's an elevated point of view yeah. in an argument to be able to say, you know what? Because she's essentially saying, I'm not done with us as friends. I'm just saying to you, you've hurt me. I'm going to have to feel this way and you're going to have to deal with it because I am not, for once, I am not going to help you feel better about something you did to me. Right. You're going to have to sit in that and deal with it yeah. and learn from it, which is well, very empowering. Well, and I think the this is something that I definitely learned at a certain point in my life of like, yeah. oh, I can't not, I can't rush feeling better about a thing. Right. You can only wait. I, w- I know that I will feel better about it at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, therapy, he says, therapy teaches you is you have to walk through the valley so yeah. that you can learn what you need to learn to come out the other side. And if you're on the other end of it, which is you're the one that caused the pain, you can't force other people to forgive you. And I hope you all are fucking listening uh, to my voice right now. You cannot force other people to forgive you on your timetable. You have to be able to open the door to having them forgive you on their timetable because you committed the offense. That's elevated therapy. That's healthy. Just so well, I, that's a, that's words of wisdom from John Roker right there. <laughs> and, and, and B part of it is you have to know that you're the one who made them feel that way. Exactly. Like that thing that Sandy says is like, if you don't acknowledge fully acknowledge and feel shitty in the way you're supposed to feel shitty, all your well-spoken apologies don't matter. Exactly. You know, that's you know, how you make it up to them. You have right. to feel shitty. Aren't we still friends? No, we are not friends. I don't take this shit from friends, only from lovers. <laughs> and then storms out. And then I love this next part too. She says, What about the play? And she says, Yes, what about the play? Oh, yeah, that's right, the play. <laughs> I think I should tell you to shove your play, but I won't. Because I never allow personal despair to interfere with my professional commitments. I am a professional actress. <laughs> so good. So good. And then she takes the chocolates and to see you at rehearsal. <laughs> oh, Sandy. Don't call me. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, so good at this moment. I, I, I think the one thing that I, I, I don't, I wish they resolve better. I, I wish we had one more Sandy scene. Well, we do. When she's by herself and sees Dorothy. Yes, okay. but that, I wish, yes. I want one more other than that. Oh, I want yeah, more okay. of her. I want Michael and Sandy together after she knows that he's been Dorothy. That's oh, yeah. the scene that would have been she, nice, right? Yeah, yeah that would have been nice. So 
this night is still going, as Larry Gilbert said, and now we end up. I I love every single Sidney Pollock Dustin Hoffman scene. Yes, but the, I, this one is so good. Yes, let's let's go, let's go. So first of all, this is the second time they shot it. They shot it oh, wow. at a different location. I don't know what the uh, other location was. Yeah. And Sydney thought it was terrible. Dustin Hoffman hated the first version. And that's when they switched and they did the whole thing again. And what Sydney Pollock said is the problem with the first version was they were both trying to be funny. Ah, uh, instead of real. Right. Instead of real. Two o'clock in the morning. Michael, can't just wait. I don't care what time it is, man. You've got 10 days to get me off this show. I've had it's it. It's impossible. Then I'm getting a new agent, George. And I love Sydney Pollock goes, why you hurt my feelings, Michael? <laughs> He looks so vulnerable, you know. <laughs> I'm, and frankly, George has stood by Michael when no one else would, you know. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think you see George through a different prism. Like George is 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 an agent who is desperate to get work for his people because that means he's a good agent. Yeah. So he's got his own thing that he's negotiating. He knows Michael is talented because Michael books stuff. If the problem is that he acts like such an idiot after he books stuff. It's never the talent. It's the frustrating nature of Michael's yep. personality. So in that moment, and he's dealt with a lot of bullshit from Michael, in that moment when he says to him, why do you hurt me, Michael? It's so brilliant because it's just like, I've stood by you through so much. Yeah. Why would you even say that? You know? I mean, she thinks I'm gay. I told her about Julie. She thinks I'm gay. Julie thinks you're gay. No, my friend Sandy. I mean, it's crazy. I'll sleep with her. Which is a, which is a, which is fucked up in a weird way. But the but the line the next line is great. I slept with her once. She still thinks I'm gay. Oh, that's not so good, Mike. That's no good, Michael. <laughs> Look, I got to get back to my life. Now you got wall to wall lawyers in that office, right? There must be some kind of way to get me out of this you show can now. This a million times. Man. Why can't I die? Why can't Dorothy? have an accident i mean we can use our imaginations this isn't the toughest problem you want to kill somebody and bring me back to stiff that's okay but she better look exactly like you because i'll tell you something those people don't miss a trick they don't miss a trick and then who are these people since when did the soap opera uh people become smart. the mafia I don't, I don't. powerful powerful people these are nice people these are good people george something is what is weird about you since when do you care so much about what other people feel i mean if i didn't love julie before you should have seen a look on her face when she thought i was a lesbian it's so damn funny. I just want to say every line in this scene. Lesbian? You just said gay. No, 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 no. Sandy thinks I'm gay. Julie thinks I'm a lesbian. I thought Dorothy was supposed to be straight. Dorothy is straight. <laughs> so it was on first moment. It really is. Um, oh, it's so good. And then Les, the sweetest, nicest man in the world, tonight asked me to marry him. A guy named Les wants you to marry him? Yeah, no, not Matt. No, wants to marry Dorothy. I mean, how, John, how am I not going to just play the whole scene here? Yeah, you really should just play the whole scene here, man. But it's so great. <laughs> it's such a great scene. Does he know she's a lesbian? Dorothy's not a lesbian. I know that, but does he know that? Oh, what? <laughs> There's a pause, and George tries to figure it out and then goes, <laughs> Did, well, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> This came out with from an actual argument with Sidney Pollack, where they were arguing about the characters, and right. Dustin got so passionate about Dorothy as if she was a real person and that she wasn't a lesbian, and that's how this whole dialogue came about. So good. This is my favorite scene. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. This is my favorite scene between them. This is my favorite scene between them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so perfect. So perfect. I mean, I love the tomato monologue like that. That is oh, sure, really, really sure. funny. Sure. But this <laughs> when he, George goes, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Because this is also the first time that George is at Michael's level. 
right? In all the other scenes, George is trying to consult, uh, trying to how to counsel Michael, trying to he bitches Michael out. He points out these things about Michael, uh, and of course, Dorothy Michaels pinches him at the Russian tea room, all that. So it's a little bit of a messing with the power dynamics there. But and then when they're walking down the street, he's the one telling, "You have nothing to tell women. Stop it. You can't do this. Don't do this." Blah blah blah. This scene though is the first time George is actually talking to him as a friend, like equal in the situation. And that's what makes the scene work so well, actor to actor. They're in the same level of power. We cut in a really harsh way out of the scene, back onto the set, and we hear that... Our future ex-tape editor has just spilled a bottle of celery tonic all over the second reel of the show airing today. So we have to redo Emily's party scene live. And that's Ellen Foley, for people who don't know. She's uh, the first season, I think, of Night Court before Marky Post comes in. Mm. She is the, the actress who plays the uh, the kind of the love interest, I think. Of- then Dorothy goes to see Julie. I think at this point she is going to try to tell Julie. Yes. Julie interrupts her and says, Dorothy, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you how much you've meant to me these past couple weeks. You, you taught me how to stand up for myself because you always stand up for yourself. <laughs> All of these words hit home. Yeah. You taught me to stop hiding and just be myself because you're you're always yourself. And I'm grateful to you. But I just can't see you anymore. She broke up with him, in essence. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you, you have someone who suddenly wants to be more than friends, particularly when you think that she's a lesbian. Right. How do you continue that friendship? I really love you, Dorothy, but I can't, I can't love you. I think Dustin Hoffman plays this silence in a profound way. Yeah, agreed. And then Julie closes the door in Dorothy's face. And I'm trying to work something out in my head on this because, you know, things sometimes come to me when we're having conversations, which I really appreciate about the show. But like this idea that because she thinks he's a lesbian which means he likes women which he does right michael does dorothy michaels doesn't in that way she thinks maybe she's been hiding something from her and now that he has re- she's mm. revealed the secret in essence they can't be together anymore so that's a fascinating little like foreshadowing of what's about to happen on the set so I guess that's, I don't know, does that make sense? That's coming to me in my yeah. head right now as we talk. So, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, tr- now I'm trying to figure out how to put together <laughs> what I think about that. I think, but, but here's the interesting thing. All right, I'm going to put this in a weird way. Frequently, I know that I need my story to get to a certain place. Right. And I need my characters to get to a certain place. And then, in bad writing, you force it. Yes. In good writing, you figure out how to get how how it makes sense for your characters to do the thing to get the character to the right place. Did I say that that makes sense the way I said that? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Is that you can't have a kid like you go like, oh, I need there to be a bad guy here. That doesn't mean thing. And it's like, well, that bad. it's like uh, this is what it is. Sidney Pollack said you can't make, force an actor to do what they don't want to do. You right. also can't force a character in your story to do something unless they want to do it. Right. They have to be in the right emotional place to do it. And so what I think works so well in this is that you need to force Michael Dorsey to reveal himself. Yeah. Him making the move on Julie 
Yeah. And Julie forces Julie to want to change their relationship. Yes. And that is what makes Michael desperate enough to do the thing he's about to do. That's that's it. That's it. That's what we were getting to together. Fair enough. Yes. Man, we had to we had to work some shit out there together, right, man. It's good. Um, uh, <laughs> I like working shit out on the fly. It's fun. Well, and it really goes to why was Dustin Hoffman such a pain in the ass is because he kept going. It's not good enough. This is not we need to make this work for these characters, you know. Yeah. So we're on the set and we go out of the tape scene and we're getting ready. You know, we've cut to commercial and we're getting ready for the live scene. By the way, this was exceptionally difficult to shoot because they actually did a live three camera video shoot because all of the images in the control room are playing live and they're doing a three camera film shoot at the same time. So you have six cameras all shooting at once. And you can't, in general, what Sidney Pollack said, is that I can't have take two be the take on film and take one be the tape that's in the control room because they don't match. They'll be out of sync. And so they had to get it all together, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So he's so he's directing both a, a live soap opera shoot and directing a movie shoot at the same time, basically. So we do the countdown and we hear music and it's a big party scene and everyone is toasting Dorothy Michaels's character who's at the top of the stairway and Les is watching on TV. Jeff is watching on TV. Sandy is watching on TV. And at first she's thanking them for the toast. And then in the midst of it, she looks over at Julie and there's a pause <laughs> and Ron in the control room goes, uh-oh. Because <laughs> they're live. And she comes downstairs and she starts to tell this crazy story. Oh, it's fantastic. Apparently, when they went to shoot it, it sounds like Dustin Hoffman freaked out. He Dustin Hoffman went, I'm a really good improviser. I could never improvise this. It's too oh. much to keep in your head. And so if I, who am a really good improviser, can't improvise this, then Michael Dorsey can't improvise this. And so he, like, basically stopped the shoot. And so I think Sidney Pollack went, Dustin, this is the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, this is the, we've been working this whole, for for yeah. years to get to this moment. You have to do it, you know. You have to nail it. And so he does this ridiculous monologue about this nurse that went to work at the hospital and was, you know, abused by Dr. Brewster and ended up dying. It was this brother who on the day of her death swore to the good Lord above that he would follow in her footsteps and, 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 and. That and is great. That, I think that's how he saves the improv situation. Yep. The and, 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 yeah. Which goes into a just, 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 just. Just, 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 don't, just. Don't, 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 don't. Oh, it all up to her, <laughs> but on her terms. God, here come the terms. As a woman. And there's a pause and she says, for I am not Emily Kimberly. Emily Kimberly. Takes off her glasses. <laughs> takes off the eyelashes. No, I'm not. And then whips that wig off. <sighs> I'm Edward Kimberly, the reckless brother of my sister, Anthony. <laughs> so great. Oh, my God. I replayed this moment like uh, 10 times. Yeah. Every reaction is gold. Well, Gina Davis is the first that starts to sense something, right? Because they cut to her as she takes the mm-hmm. eyelashes off or doesn't take the eyelashes yeah. off. And she's like, oh, and the half mouth open, she's like, oh, like what is about to happen here? And then the reveal happens and everybody's reaction is just 
priceless. And my favorite reaction is the boss who goes, And I'm not mentally ill, but proud and lucky. It's so genius, man. But so amazing. Every react, all the reactions are different. Yeah, and they're authentic to the characters that they've spent exactly. the entire year building up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't tell. I mean, my favorite one because I had to watch it multiple times. Yeah, it might be Charles Durning who drops his sandwich, but then <laughs> takes a bite as if he's still holding the sandwich. <laughs> um, and Sandy screams. Oh, Sandy and- screaming! That scream is is just as good as the scream she does with Michael. I love that scream. And strong enough to be the woman that was the best part of my manhood, the best part of myself. And that line he directs to Julie. Yeah. <laughs> but Bill Murray's line is great, too, because he's sitting there reading Dashiell Hammett and says, That is one nutty hospital. <laughs> and also, and then Ron says, I knew there was a reason she didn't like me. <laughs> and he's happy about it. Like, yeah, he is. He's vindicated. Yes. They cut to commercial. There's a fantastic, another great reaction from Gina Davis. And Julie walks forward. And this is the this was the concern when they're working on the on, on putting the script together is they're like it's funny but it's also really tragic like yes. like what the betrayal of julie is so terrible yeah and sydney pollock was really worried that it would take the movie in this really sad direction and that's why they came up with her punching him in the belly instead of slapping him which yeah. i think would have been the default thing right or right punch him is a more forceful action yeah and it makes us okay with the comedy you know yes. like okay we're okay with it and then of course the button on the scene is john van horn who says does jeff know <laughs> <laughs> it's later he's michael is walking through central park there's a mime oh pushing the mime is great that is a freebie that was a that's a they did it multiple times of him just walking by the mime oh really <laughs> and then dustin hoffman went to the mime it said he said sydney can we have one more take and he goes to the mime whispers to him i'm gonna is it okay if i push you and mine goes yeah sure and so, and so that was dustin hoffman's idea that was great because his reaction afterward the whole wiping yeah himself is great. uh we see the the syracuse playhouse which is playing return to love canal um and then we're at a very manly bar and we see a truck pull off and there's charles journey who gets in and their decision was they wanted the most masculine bar possible so there's boxing on the TV. There's, you know, animal heads on the walls. There's guys shooting pool. And, you know, it's a, a, a man's place. Sure. Uh, and we see uh, Les sits down and we see that Michael is down uh, the bar from him, goes over, sits next to him. The slow realization that Charles Durning does I, is amazing. I meant to say, I want to say this here because I thought of you immediately when I was watching this and thought of the show. I was like, every actor. In my belief, every actor wants to play the slow realization moment. I mean, I think as much as, a, you know, doing a great cry or a great monologue, the slow realization, if you get it right, it is so gratifying for an actor because it's it can be cheesy. It can be too long or too short. So you've got to hit the right sweet spot for a scene. And Charles Durning is perfect with the slow realization here. It's amazing. There's like 12 stages to it, you know? That's what I'm saying. It's genius. It's an act, It's a challenge for an actor to get it. And he tries to give back the ring and he says, give it to me outside. <laughs> he shoves it um, back outside. Yeah. Why'd you do it? I needed the work. The only reason you're still living is because I never kissed you. It's a little homophobic, but all right, you know? I hope you enjoyed the chocolates. I, I gave them to a, a girl. So did I, I thought. <laughs> That's a great line. You like them? Shortcuts? 
Girls. I like Julie. I think I, I love Julie. Wearing a dress is a funny way to show it. I know. I apologize. And then, and this is, man, Les is a good guy. He is. I, I agree with you. He is. He softens you. Truth is, you were okay company. So are you. I think the second he said to him... I'm seeing a real nice woman now. Oh, really? You think I didn't check her out? Because he's surrendering that vulnerability. And, yeah. And even Dustin Hoffman or, or Michael responds with, oh, that's good. And then, this is how you do closure, man. This is good fucking writing and a well-constructed scene. How do you do closure? I'm fine up here. You got six bits, yeah. That's less saying, okay, yeah. you know, it we're is. moving past that. We're moving past it, right, exactly, yeah. 100%. You're right, perfect closure, perfect. And would Les have started dating someone if it weren't for Dorothy Michaels? Right, kind of waking him. That's a great point, kind of getting yeah. him back out there in a way and waking his heart back up, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and then... This and again, it's just like you said about the slow realization, the slow turn. This next moment has is a similar brilliant piece of acting, which is Michael says, "Does Julie ever mention me?" And Les makes a fist. Yeah, and you could see that there's that I want to hit you. Yeah, and then he turns it into a shoulder punch, and that's again, it's acceptance. It's like yeah. okay, you know. Uh, we're back out in front of the studio. Julie's signing autographs, and there is Michael. She sees him. She walks away. He runs to catch up. Why didn't she take a taxi? It's because she wants to talk to him, isn't it? She wants to talk to him. Yeah, yeah. I agree. He wants. She wants him to chase her in that moment because she could have taken a taxi to get away from him. No problem. By the way, this is all Times Square that they're shooting in, <sighs> and man, that that's crazy. That's a lot of a lot of crowd control they had to do. Oh yeah. Sure. How's it going? And she answers by talking about the show, yeah. which I have a question about. Okay. Was Michael fired off the show? Yes. Why? The question Because he, uh, every contract has an ethics clause or a morals clause. And so he violated by, because Dorothy Michaels signed the contract, not Michael, whatever his last name is. So they have no contract with Michael, blah, blah, blah. They have a contract with Dorothy Michaels. And so, so since he does, he's not Dorothy Michaels in real life, then the contract's not valid. So everything you said, it makes perfect sense. Right. Let me ask the question a different way. Okay. That soap opera audience, do they want to see more of the brother of Emily Kimberly? I could not possibly speculate because uh, I, 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 a majority of them are women. So uh, To me, it's like this is the greatest twist of any soap opera ever. True. True. Like Very you true. have this character was so popular. She's on the cover of a magazine. And now you find out that this has been a man all the time. You want to keep that person on the soap opera. That's what I think. I mean, possibly uh, because you're also pissing off your main actress, who is your star. Julie. Sure. What's the balance? Uh, that, that, uh, all of that is true. And this is just an alternate reality. The other, the other reason I think that they, they keep her on the show is there are two choices. Either the show and the network look like absolute fools yes. or the show and the network said we planned it all along. Right. The, and, and look and really with, smart. With Michael's consent. But Michael yes. doesn't want to be on the show. Sure. Right. I, so he, yeah. I and and, and, the, the and the real reality is that's not what this movie is about. The movie is right. about Julie at this point. We got to get to the end of the fucking yeah, movie. The, you asked. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> look, I don't want to hold you up. I just did it for the work. I didn't mean to hurt anybody. Especially you. And then she says, 
I miss Dorothy. Yeah, there's a long pause. Yeah. Kind of like with Les. Yeah. That little long pause because her father, daughter, and she says it kind of quietly. I miss the way he says, truth is, you were good company, is the same way she's saying, I miss Dorothy. You don't have to. She's right here. And she misses you. And then his next line. Look, you don't know me from Adam, but I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was with a woman as a man. You know what I mean? This is a fucking great line, dude. It's almost, it's, it's better than the Jack Nicholson line, you make me want to be a better man. Mm. But, but that, that line is in league with this line. It's such yeah. a good line. Dustin Hoffman didn't want to say it. <laughs> of course he didn't want to say it, son of a bitch. Sidney Pollack <laughs> almost took it out of the movie. Oh, come on. In the editing room. Whole fucking point. I, I, and what's so funny is, so that line, A, made me, it made me cry when I watched the movie. Yeah. But then when I'm going through my notes and I watch just, because sometimes I go really slow because I have to stop and start because I'm writing down all this dialogue. Yeah. Stopping and starting, I cried again. Just watch. And what Dustin Hoffman does in that performance is amazing in that line. It is. And he says, and again, I think the spin, not the spin, the intensity Dustin Hoffman puts on this next line yeah. is amazing. He says, Hard part's over. You know, we were already good friends. There's just so much in that. There's an honesty there. Yeah. And she asks, and again, this is this is how you do it. This is like this is like you got six bits for the beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you loan me that little yellow outfit? And she says, which one? The Halston. The Halston? Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> and they walk away talking as the credits roll. And I also think her hitting him mm. is a great moment too that they build to as they're walking away. Because that's her way. Now that she's t- like, that's the beginning of her being able to be okay with touching him and him touching her, which is why if you, I think you have to have that moment where she kind of pushes him in a playful way because they're having a banter. And that leads to being okay for him to put his arm around her and she put his arm around him as it goes to, as it pauses and goes to black. Absolutely. So that is the end of Tootsie. Here's a, here's the interesting thing that happened in post. So, I'm not going to say this exactly perfectly technically. It's not my area of expertise, but the way you would make a movie back in the day is you, you, you make a negative and you cut the negative and that's the, going to be the master. And then you make a print off of that negative. And then you're going to make copies, but you don't want to be touching your original negative or original prints very much. Cause every time you touch them, you could scratch the film right. and there's wear and tear. So you're going to put that away in a vault. And so then you make, like let's say five or six new prints off of the first prints. And those are the ones you make copies of. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're not touching that original. So now you're down at like the third generation or the fourth generation. And then as you go, like it goes to the big movie theaters, it gets one of the early prints. And then when you're sending it out and you're making, you know, to go to little podunk theater somewhere, that's probably a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Okay. Every time you make a copy, the quality gets a little bit worse. And one of the things that happens is the contrast goes up and there's more grain visible in the film. Okay. No big deal. Most of the time, unless you've got a guy dressing up as a woman where it's super, super important that we don't see his shadow of his beard. When they got to those, you know, the fourth level of copies, suddenly (laughs) Dustin Hoffman looked like a man again. (laughs) And so they had, they're like, holy shit, we've gone through this crazy journey and it's not going to work. 
right. you know, with it's not actually working on the film. And so they had to do this really complicated process where they would flash the film, which means that you shine a quick light at, uh, at the negative. Holy so it overexposes it a little bit. And then they had to stop it down. They had to do all this weird technical stuff chemically in order to maintain Dustin Hoffman's lack of a beard. Holy shit. Apparently at the very first screening, people went nuts. Like, like loved it. Loved it. Uh, just like couldn't stop laughing. To say it was a huge hit is an understatement. Yeah. Apparently, until Ghostbusters, this was the most successful comedy of all time. Wow. It was the third most profitable movie of 1982, which is saying something because the two most popular movies yeah. are E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. Fair point. Jeez. So coming in third in that year, pretty good. Yeah. So as I think I told you, the WGAs who figures out who gets credit for the script, we had all these writers on this thing. They chose to give this credit to uh, Maury Chagall, who is Dustin Hoffman's buddy, and Larry Gelbart. They did not give credit to uh, Elaine May, <laughs> which from everything I've read, like her name should have been on this. Yeah, of course. So they're at the New York Film Critics Awards, and the best screenplay goes to Maury Chagall and Larry Gelbart. The moment that they get up on stage together to accept the award is the moment they met. <laughs> they had never been in the same room together. They had never met. Ridiculous. Well, and it's so funny because you see two people win a screenplay, screenwriting award. You assume they wrote the screenplay together. Right. <laughs> they did not. This is nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress for Terry Garr, Best Supporting Actress for Jessica Lange, Best Screenplay, uh, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Song, Best Sound. Jessica Lange won for Best Supporting Actress. Didn't win anything else. Yeah. This is the year of Gandhi. Yeah. So Gandhi won Picture, Actor, Cinematographer, Directing, Editing, and Screenplay. Uh, the song was won by Officer and a Gentleman, Up Where You Belong. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to be fake that song. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I think that makes sense. Sound went to E.T. The crazy thing to me, it was not nominated for Best Makeup. Wow. Isn't that nuts? It is kind of nuts. And it is listed as the number two film on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs. You want to know what the number one one is? Ghostbusters? It is. Some like it hot. <laughs> so that should motivate any of you listening to us to create a cross-dressing comedy. That should motivate you all to try to get to beat some like it hot into it. Yeah, there you go. Here's here's one more quote from Larry Gelbart, just because I always find him very funny. Uh -huh. he, he said, uh, never work with an Oscar winner who is shorter than the statue. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh John, do you have final thoughts on Tootsie? Yeah, here's my final thoughts. Uh, if you haven't seen this one in a long time, do yourself a favor. And hopefully we've brought it to life for you in these two in this two-part conversation here. Because as I said at the beginning of the first part, it is my one of my favorite movies. It is, according to two of the screenwriter, uh, screenwriter teachers that I took classes with, the tightest script ever written. And the comedy here works from genuine from genuine places. And that's not always the case when it comes to comedies, and especially 1980s comedies. Uh, you've got you, – this is such a rarity, and it's a rarity in such a good way 
And it's a film that still resonates in 2022. Some of the things that Charles Durning is saying is less are the things that we're fighting against in 2022. Some of the things that are happening here with this idea of cross-dressing, the frustrations of actors, all this. There is so much here, gender dynamics. All of these things are here, and there are lessons, life lessons to be learned in this movie for everybody. And at the end of the day, uh, it's just flat-out entertaining as hell. And that's what you want at the most base level of a film. Uh, And the fact that it also teaches you so many things, also shows you so many things about the world, I think is just a plus. And uh, I think it's, ironically, maybe Sidney Pollack's best film, uh, and yet it's the one he resisted doing the most. So it's the the irony of all of that. And I absolutely believe it is in the top five of Dustin Hoffman's performances and maybe on a, on a certain day in the top three. So it's just a stellar film from top to bottom and a classic in my opinion. Agreed. I'm I'm trying to think of how to articulate this the right way. We've spent a lot of time. There's a lot of pressure today to make admirable characters and to question Mm. characters in movies because they are not living up to some moral standard that we perceive. Like we don't want to see characters that are, racist or bigoted or insensitive or whatever. Right. And I think this movie is a perfect example of why that is the wrong strategy. It's not that right. I don't want to see admirable characters in movies. I do that. There are a lot of great movies that have very admirable characters, yeah. but Michael Dorsey is a fucked up person. Yeah. You know, is that he, and that that's part of why this movie works is that it's forcing us to examine all of this stuff. And within a comedy, the only way sometimes to get at this stuff is to show humans and all of their flaws and problems. And the most interesting thing is that he's a fucked up person who does a lot of fucked up stuff and I can still really like him. Yep. You know what I mean? And want him to succeed and be rooting for Michael Dorsey even though he's a pain in the ass and insensitive and mean and you know, all that stuff that, that we're the, the, is that to this movie moves the ball forward in all sorts of ways because it has this character at its center. Who's messed up, you know? Um, so that is what we think of Tootsie. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please visit us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, where we're Cine underscore files on Instagram, Cinefiles podcast. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts. And please, please, please leave those reviews. If you want to watch, uh, if you want to buy or stream Tootsie along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it at cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can Star Trek it up on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. And you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris or SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would people find all the many things that you are doing? <laughs> you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and head on over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, or type in John Roca, the Outlaw Nation. The YouTube channel will come up, uh, and you can see all the stuff I'm doing over there, plus my podcast, my other podcast, The Geek Buddies, uh, and the top 10 that's out there for you to enjoy and consume. And that is it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles for another great film. And here is a spoiler alert. I don't think it's next, but one of the movies that we have mentioned today in this discussion is one we will be reviewing very soon. So until then, we will see you next time on The Cinephiles. (laughs) 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 